Hello everyone, how are you doing? And welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope, and we sit back, we have a conversation, we chat about ideas and strategies on how you can live your best life. Now today's episode is, so you want to be a college professor. Uh, this has been some, a topic of mine because, you know, I have some interest myself in sort of dabbling in the waters and seeing how that's going on. And I know that for many in my field in K through 12 education, it's sort of a natural extension of what happens next after you receive your doctorate. And, but how do you get there? You know, particularly when you don't have that ex, you know, the experience because we're coming from the workforce, you know, and I want, I came across uh, Dr. Nicole Margarita Guns Garcia. I don't know why Gonzalez popped in my head. Garcia, <laughs> because of her writings with uh, diverse education. And I was like, this is some good stuff here. And there were certain articles that really made me go, wow, this happens. And from that, I reached out to ask her to come on the show. Uh, so for those of you who will be watching in the future on YouTube or listening on SoundCloud or iTunes, uh, Dr. Garcia, will you please introduce yourself? Yes, thank you for having me. It's an honor to share with you what I know um, and a little bit about where I come from and the work that I do. Uh, but long story short, um, I'm a Chicana Puerto Rican, born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. And that's where I did my undergrad education at the University of Utah. From there, I went to grad school in California, pursued a master's in Chicano studies at UC Santa Barbara, went on to pursue my PhD at UCLA um, in education, and then did a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania in higher ed. And I will be joining Rutgers um, Graduate School of Education in the fall. So it's just a little summary. I'm sure we'll get more in depth around who I am and how I came to this work. Wow, you just balling out. <laughs> no, no. It takes a village. It really does take a village. You balling out. They probably look at me and go, pass. No. Uh, though I did have one university, I, I spoke to them about adjuncting, and then he told me about the pay, and I was like, you can keep that. Uh, <laughs> like, Mm -mm. Uh, so we live in a world and this is so interesting because the people that were in the group were really into this whole ivory tower of we are invincible. We are the tradition. We are the standard. If you are different from us, you are outside of the, the norm. You do not count. But digital has created this whole world of disruption for uh, many professors. And I know from reading a lot of uh, articles that they see technology and corporate entities entering into higher education as unwelcomed and unwarranted. How would you define the role of the college university professor, especially now, as we, we know that tuition is going up, a lot of universities are having problems with endowments, technology is coming in, you're, you're getting a different type of student than, right. than, let's say, 10, 15 years ago. 
and there are schools that are actually closing uh, and online education is growing not only from the for profits but you have universities that people will say you know this is university of california or this is that uh, university maryland system and they're they they're no joke because they're offering those online programs because they see the tide and see where things are going where do you see this role of, of, of this role of teaching changing because of technology and online degree programs becoming more of the norm? Okay, it's a big, big question, and I'm gonna get into it. <laughs> In terms of us, them, they, who, like who specifically are you talking about, right? Because coming as a person of color into institutions of higher education, um, depending on where you're attending, the type of institution, whether that's a community college, um, a, a four-year public-private, for-profit, nonprofit, right? They're geared to different populations in specific ways. And I think that's the most frustrating thing for me as an educator to see, because the majority of my community are ending up overrepresented in for-profit institutions and are on those online degree programs and are thinking, honestly, that they're getting the education in the, the back, the diploma that they need, but then going into the workforce and understanding that they just went into massive debt and their degree is worthless. So that's the thing, I think that's the war that I'm battling right now in terms of this is how you have to get to community college if you don't have the K through 12 preparation. Community college, which is a whole other battle for Latino students in particular to get out because it should take two years, but it takes them average four to six, four to eight, depending on who you are, where you're coming from. Um, so I think technology, it has its, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because it's one, maybe be affordable, for students that are working, um, non-traditional, have families, um, but it's where you're getting that education from. And is it quality? And are you gonna get the credentials that you need in order to pursue the career that you want? And I think that that is very masked by corporate America, um, very deceiving, and is just creating a major debt for communities of color in general. And so when I see students, they ask me a lot of how did you get where you are? And I'm like, I was very fortunate to meet good people on the right path. Um, I used to work as an academic advisor at pretty much every university I was at. Um, and they'd come in and they'd have an associate's degree from DeVry or from um, ITT Tech. And I had to say, oh, we don't accept this. You have to start all over again. And just seeing the face and the disappointment was just so sad. Right. So I think having the right information um, and being able to do that as a college professor, um, one thing that I never disassociate myself from is the community. I'm always in the community wherever I go, um, whether that's in a high school, whether that's local community college, whether that's down the street, talking to the kid on the corner. So that's really important for me. So I, I can't divorce the two and I can't leave underrepresented communities alone to figure that battle out. Um, and I think it's important once you get to the ivory tower in it that you're at the table and you have um, you have a say at that table, right? Who's sitting there? Who's discussing these communities? And are they a part of the community? Have they been in the community? If not, you have to speak up, right? Because no one else is going to. So that's kind of how I see that as a bigger picture. But it is, it's a good resource, right? Technology is amazing what you can do with it. It's fast. It's a really good teaching tool. I use it in a lot of my classes. It's ways to get information out um, 
very widely and promptly. Um, so that's, that's where I see it, but it, it can be damaging, but you have to teach with the balance. Hmm. Now, here's my thing about the technology because it isn't, it, it, it's not going anywhere and it's only becoming no. a, a point of fact in terms of when you go to the workplace, it's there. Like you can be, a, you're from the a school of education. So they do a terrible job. Most schools of education, I'm just going to flat out say this, they do a terrible job of preparing their students for the realities of the modern classroom. Uh-huh. That student graduates, then they get into that school where there's a one-to-one, a BYOD program, and they're like, what is happening here? Because what? They're walking into a classroom with 25, 30 Chromebooks, or each kid has their own device. They don't know how to teach with that technology. They don't know what classroom management looks like with that device. They, when someone says, okay, you're going to blend your classroom. So part of your classroom must be taught with a learning management system. They're like, what? Because their university prepared them as though they were supposed to be teaching in the 19th and 20th century, Uh which we are far beyond that people. And when I see that happening, and that, that's the only reason when I say to myself, I want to go to higher ed because I know what I do every day with teachers because my job is an instructional technologist. To go there and prepare teachers so that when they get to that school, they're like, I got this. They're, they're comfortable. Their ideas about uh, pedagogy and such is different. It's not sit and get worksheet, pencil, paper, whatever. It's expanded. Uh But I don't see that happening. You are from the School of Education. What are you seeing on your end happening in preparation for those students? Right. So in terms of teachers going into high schools, and being able, well equipped. So I'm actually in higher ed, I don't do K through 12 work, but I have worked in K through 12. Um, and my experience comes from, I guess, UCLA and uh, teachers coming out of Center X at UCLA, which is the teacher ed program there. Um, and I think the majority of Center X serves underrepresented communities. So kids didn't have technology. There wasn't that bridge, like they had no access to it. And when they did have the access, it was, you have to re- leave it in the classroom. It was police technology. So mm-hmm. they weren't able to carry everything, right? So I think you're talking about a huge problem and how teachers teach. That's every university's um, own battle and how they're going to do that. And are there teachers, pre- I mean, I think teaching is an ongoing skill that you absolutely have to keep going and learning and discovering and working with your students and being co-creators of knowledge because there's no way you know everything. And I think when you have a barrier, I know as myself, as a teacher, I'm going to try to get the best resources I can as possible. I'm going to be on YouTube looking up things. I'm going to be doing this and that. But I don't know if I have um, a direct answer for you regarding like how we fix that problem. Because I think it's hard when the U.S. has a nation where every school district, every state is different and we're not cohesive across the board, right? There are major disparities, major 
I mean, if you look at really wealthy neighborhoods, they have all those resources and they have the teachers that can teach it. But when you look at the, the other side of the coin, that's not necessarily the situation. So again, I think I'm gonna pose it in a bigger problem and position it in, okay, so what districts are you talking about? What teachers are you talking about? What universities are you talking about? Who's specializing in these things? Who's getting those resources and where are these people going? So that's a really good question. I think um, the universities that I've went to do have good teacher ed programs and are trying to teach those teachers as best as possible. Um, but you know, I think a lot of teachers, depending on where they're being assigned, don't understand how hard the classroom can be. Um, and that in itself, you have, that's a lived experience journey <laughs> to learn how to teach, right? So I think that that's very, um, yeah, I think I'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go on yeah. another. <laughs> yes, now you're about to go somewhere with that one. Um, so, you know, there are of us who, you know, we're interested in pursuing a, a career of teaching in higher ed. And we hear about the trials of, of low pay and adjunct teaching, the dwindling numbers of tenure professors. In fact, I was reading something in Inside Higher Ed where one guy was like, he was calling his adjuncts like volunteer teachers. Uh, and people were like, clarification, volunteer? Like right. no one's doing this for free. Right. <laughs> so, but I do, and I know that there are adjuncts around the country who are forming unions as well for better paying conditions. Please paint me a picture of the current landscape uh, of what it's like to be a professor out there. So I've never been an adjunct either. So I've been very fortunate <laughs> on that end, but I do have colleagues that have been adjuncting for years and I've seen them in the struggle and I'm going to use California and uh, New York as two case studies of where that's happening specifically in the CUNY system and in the Cal State system. And these adjuncts are teaching six to seven courses. Um, in LA, that's really hard to do because you're jumping from campus to campus in traffic and your, your day is taken. Um, and I think in the New York system, that you could just saw a huge protest happen regarding adjuncts and how they um, were going on strikes and unions were being formed because the pay was ridiculous and still is, right? And so I think adjuncts, um, are now the the new oh my gosh I don't want to get in trouble for saying this but like the new cheap labor in the academy because they can teach the courses that either um, tenured professors that are on sabbatical uh, you know are released and so someone comes in and takes it or they're just really quick and quick to turn around and there's lots of adjuncts out there well there's a tons there's more PhDs out there than there are jobs we know that and so I think that um, one rule or one word of advice that I got was don't start adjuncting because it's going to be hard to transition into tenure. Or if you do have an adjunct position, have it as a visiting professor because that looks different to committees rather than adjuncting puts you in that pool of, oh, I don't even want to touch this because this isn't R1 or tenure track material. So those are, those are things that I've heard. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't have enough time to adjunct because I was working through school and doing other research projects. So, but I know that the, the struggle's out there and I see it and I recognize it and I feel for my colleagues and I think I talk with them 
well, some of them are really like my really good friends and best friends. And we're talking all the time about, you know, the disparities that occur in adjuncting. So I think for me as a postdoc, it's different. I have a different layer of privilege because I'm associated with the university and I'm there. My sole purpose is to do my research. Um, and then if I want to teach, I can teach, right? And I have that lovely comfort of knowing that I'm going to get a paycheck for X amount of contract years. Mm-hmm. So um, I was very fortunate in that realm. Um, so I want to throw this out there to you because I've seen a lot about, we've heard the publish or perish and where let's say research or grant writing takes uh, front and center over, let's say maybe your teaching. Uh-huh. What is that? I guess like for, for someone knowing that I, I need to publish so many articles in these research journals, you know, cause we all know, look, I know I'm not on the inside game. So for me, if you're, <laughs> if you're in a, a, a recognized research journal, to me it should count, but I know for some, you know, a lot of folk, you know, you have your tears. So, right. You want to be you want to be publishing here. You want to be publishing there. Like the oh, okay, you know, but they don't you know it doesn't really count. So you know, knowing how that sort of system works, how does it feel to work in a system where you know this is what they're looking for? Now, you some people may want to be, do the research, but others may want to do the teaching. They may want to do the guiding of students on the dissertation uh, uh-huh. process, which we, oh my, woo, man, look, <laughs> my Dr. LeBlanc was my role dog, but I've heard a lot of people who they didn't get a lot of guidance and you were turning in these 30 pages and it'd take you a month and a half before you got feedback. And I'm thinking like, this is ridiculous. So when you know this is a game you're playing in, now you're about to go off to Rutgers and do your thing. And you're on a path, quite honestly, to where you could end up, you know, getting that 89, 90, whatever, $100,000 teaching at university. But this is the game you have chosen to sort of play in. So how do you feel about that? <laughs> That's a really good question. I think about that daily. <laughs> so um, I think it's a game that I chose to play because my dad never got to finish this game. So I picked up where he left off. And so my dad pursued his PhD, but didn't finish because my grandmother that I wrote about in one of my op-eds um, got sick. And so he was the only one that was able to take a leave of absence and take care of his mother. And so during that time period, he decided not to continue. Um, and I saw him go through pretty much all the way up to ABD. And then all of that was gone. It just lapsed. Um, so my dad's very active in the community. Um, social worker, you know, definitely about youth of color, working with youth of color that are incarcerated, getting them out of the system. So for me, it was about finishing something that I was set out to do. And I promised I would finish one for my grandmother, but also to help a legacy that I had, I know that had started and hadn't gotten finished yet. So that was, that was part of it. Also, I think being a part of a McNair program, um, I don't know if you know about the McNair program, Mm -hmm. but they are for, you know, 
first gen, uh, under, underrepresented and or low income students. And I think having shared experiences in a cohort as an undergrad and knowing what that commitment meant um, was really important to me. And once you're a McNair Scholar, you're always a McNair Scholar. And from there, you're supposed to pay it forward. And for me, they put all the resources, resources and means to become a professor, I'm gonna do it <laughs> and I'm gonna pay it forward. I'm very much like mindset, if I'm gonna do something and if I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do it. And since 13, I was like, I'm gonna be a doctor. I'm just gonna be a professor, I'm gonna do it. So <laughs> that's part of it. Now what that means and being a part of the system, that's a whole different story. Um, I was talking to my best friend who she uh, pursued her PhD and ultimately took a leave and hasn't went back yet. And she's like, I don't know how you, how you did it. Like, this is the most destructive um, system I've ever had to play at in terms of being a woman of color in graduate school, pursuing job, the job market, teaching, all of that. Um, and I think it's hard. It's not easy. It definitely takes, like I said, a village and community that's willing to invest in you and you invest in them. And I honestly have had some of the best mentors um, that have done that for me. And I think if I didn't have those mentors, I'm not sure I'd be here today. So specifically, I don't have just one mentor. I have about 12 that I go mm -hmm. to for different things. So it's not just one sole person that I'm putting all my eggs in their basket. Absolutely not. And I think that one mentor that I think I have in my head, she's always like, no, you are resourceful. Like you go get things from people that whenever... So one of my mentors is like, closed mouths don't get fed, Nicole. Right, they don't. So I'm like, how do I finish this dissertation? How do I do this? How do I do that? And I think um, being at predominantly white institutions for the majority of my um, graduate school education and also, or historically white and also my undergrad, um, that kind of geared me with a whole other skill level. Also growing up in Utah geared me. I was in a K through 12 system that was very, um, over majority white and so I learned how to get along with folks that were not of my community and or look like me and I think the first um, teacher of color I had was probably in high school maybe so not having that experience one and being like all right I'm going to change these demographics I got to change these odds have always been a driving force for me I think being in actual the academy itself it's, it's exhausting I wrote a piece on you don't look like a professor so encountering those microaggressions daily is real and I think things that I do to recommend to counter those is you know be around communities that serve you and help sustain you therapy is also a really good resource mental mental care is more than important and I also go back home where my family's at and I'm reminded of like okay these are the everyday interactions because once you get in the ivory tower you're kind of in a cloud right you're talking to other academics it's like okay where's reality where's reality and I think going into communities that, um, I used to work in Crenshaw, at Crenshaw High for the majority of my time at UCLA. And I think that was a very grounding and humbling experience um, where I saw I helped students get into college, but when you look at their report card, they weren't even eligible to graduate high school, but their aspirations were so high. And so your heart breaks every day you enter that high school, but you sit there and you say, you can do it. And this is how we're gonna do it. We're gonna do night school this day, we're gonna do night school that day. Then you're going to go to community college and you're going to go there and I'm going to be there every step of the way. And I think I learned that lesson from Tyrone Howard at UCLA who does the work on the ground and is at the university. So he's doing this balance. And I look, I learned, I like looked at him a lot. I call him my academic father. because I'm always like, Hey, what's next? How do we do this tenure thing? And he's like, 
all right, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. So I think the network that I've been able to create with K through 12, higher ed scholars, ethnic studies scholars, I also am through a variety of fields because the struggles roll in different ways in different fields in terms of knowledge bases. What counts as knowledge? What is knowledge? I was trained, my master's is in ethnic studies and Chicano studies, which isn't seen as a quote unquote field of rigor, but it's probably one of the best things I ever did in my career. I learned how to read. I learned, I learned theory. I learned how to write in that program. Um, I learned so much from that program that no one can ever take that away from me, right? Um, but it's not seen of value. You can see like the attack on ethnic studies in Arizona, um, other similar attacks happening across the nation. So that's a really long answer to the question, but I think I've touched on aspects of why I'm in the game and what it's like um, to do the work. In terms of publishing, it's, I think there's a formula to everything. And once you get the formula, you understand it, right? I was told once that, oh, you can never do stats. Like, it's just like, no, there's a formula to this. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to do it. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care that I'm going to be in the front asking questions every five minutes and irritating the whole other class. So I think a part of um, my success has been my fearlessness. I'm just fearless. Like, I will do, I don't care if I look stupid. You know, like, I got picked on K-12. That's okay, because now I'm going to ask the questions that I didn't get asked before. Um, or that I wasn't allowed or knew that I could ask. And so being empowered to do that um, is part of, part of what keeps me going and uh, figuring out those formulas, right, of how to do things. Because they're not shared widely. I didn't know about these things. Mm -hmm. And I've just been like, okay, tell me someone, like I read something and I was like, who is this person? I'm going to find them at this conference and ask them how they did it. <laughs> and for the most part, it's been pretty successful when I do things like that. So I'll stop there. That's all right. That's all right. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been looking at, as of late, jobs like uh, instructional technologist or instructional designer at universities. And interesting enough, they were like, you know, masters require doctorate preferred. So I'm sort of wondering, like, what that check going to be like if they're asking for someone to come in with a doctorate. Uh, but that sort of I know that I won't necessarily be in a classroom, but to be able to work with professors on, okay, how do you design your online classes or how do you uh -huh. use technology into your classroom? I think that'll be fulfilling uh, for me. And I think rewarding, even though sometimes, you know, I jokingly tell people that even at work, I say, man, if I could teach three days, and get two days off office hours. <laughs> I said, that'd be great. Because I work five days a week. And I'm not saying that they don't work, but it's like I work all day, five days a week. Uh, and so it, it's just it's just interesting when I hear, the, hear it because I know so many people, such as myself, who have doctors who work in K through 12, who work in industry, and then those who work in higher ed and when I hear some of them talk about it, particularly those of color, a lot of them don't seem happy uh -huh. about oh, it. Yeah, that's real. And, and I'm kind of like, well, we'll move. I mean, they tell me, I mean, I understand you worked hard to kind of get there, but you know, if you're, if you're gonna go somewhere where you're not welcomed, like one person even told me about how she was with a, a group of people and they were like, 
doctor, 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 and they got to her, Diane. Mm-hmm. And, and That's it was like, <laughs> she was like, a, did you forget? <laughs> <laughs> or someone walking into the classroom and saying, when does the professor get here? Uh-huh. And she's like, that's me. You're looking at her. <laughs> yeah. Okay. See, somebody like that, I probably play a joke, said, I'm just here because the professor said there'd be no class today. And let them leave. <laughs> I know that's wrong. Um, okay. But it happens. I mean, that's the reality. I, that happens to me often. Yeah. I'm not dressed as doctor. I'm, I look very young. Like, oh, well, yeah, where is the professor? You look like a student. Oh, I didn't know. Blah, blah, blah. What does it matter what I look like, right? It's like, what's in my knowledge base? It shouldn't be like that, but that's how it is. Because the academy from the inception of like Harvard in 1600s was comprised of white melts. So that's what they expect. Um, and I was just with one of my mentees. She took me to take, um, take your professor to lunch day. And we walked in and the woman said, well, where's the professor? <laughs> my mentee was like, this is her. And she asked it again. And she's like, well, I need proof, like basically proof of purchase. We're not running a Chuck E. Cheese here. And so for the, for the first 30 minutes of our lunch, after we had to convince the woman that I was faculty and show her my ID, we had to, you know, deconstruct what happened and process it together. And then, because she wanted to take me to lunch to ask me what it meant to be a PhD and a woman of color. And I said, that's what it is every day. But there's a trade-off, right? Because the part that I appreciate most is you taking me to lunch and you telling me what I'm doing is good and that you wouldn't be able to survive unless you saw my face that first day at orientation. So that's what keeps me going. But no, that's what you're going to get into. So it's, I mean, yes, there are people that are very unhappy, but I have the luxury for me and it, it works for me. I mean, not work for everybody. I love writing. I love reading. And that's what I get paid to do. And I think um, what I write and what I read may not be seen as whatever quality, but it's, it's what I want to do. And I'm writing books for my community about my community. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I got in the game for. So until I lose that shine and that spark, which I have told all of my mentors and friends, once that happens, including my parents who are brutally honest, tell me to get out of the game. <laughs> They're like, oh, we will be sure to tell you that. So. I think that's, yeah, that definitely happens a lot. Well, I would tell adjuncts, for sure, get out the game. And though they may not think about it, but go get you a license in K through 12 to teach because you're going to make more money and you will have insurance and pay days off. Uh, You know, I just can't, literally, I can't see it you know, having, but you know, if you're adjuncting because you want to contribute because you have a full-time job, if yeah, you're, that's, you know what I'm saying? that's, that's a different ball game. If you're, if you're adjuncting because you want to take your wife to Hawaii, you want that little extra check. That's one thing. But if you have to travel to five universities to teach just to make $30,000, go to K through 12 and make more than 30,000. That's, I'm just going to, <laughs> there's a teacher shortage anyway so just come on there's, into the fold there's a huge one yeah and make and, and make you some money where you can be be okay where you can have that not wonder if that starbucks coffee gonna mean something to you later on <laughs> 
Yeah, I think it's hard. I mean, I think they, yeah, it's a, it's really hard for people. Um, yeah, adjuncting has really put people in tough positions. So. That's sad. Um, so I've read your, your articles on diverseeducation.com. And I want to bring up a, a couple of them. The first one, you, you know, when you talked about uh, your grandmother and having the, the sense of the, the imposter syndrome, and you sort of touched on this one a few minutes ago, but the sort of the idea of you're, you're walking and someone is like, well, you don't look like a professor. How does, how does that feel for you or other academics of color when you are amongst yourselves and having these honest, honest conversations, you know, to be in academia, to be in a place where, let's be honest, everyone did the same work to get where you are. But you get there and depending on where you are, it could be thought of as less than. Uh-huh. So how, how does that feel? Doesn't feel great. <laughs> <laughs> so you're with that. Um, I think, so that piece you're talking about, I, for the audience that may have not read it, um, the PhD she never knew. It's definitely about my grandmother um, and the promise I made to her to get a PhD. And I think in that piece, I talk about, yes, I'm successful and I'm here, but less than 1% of Chicana Latinas have a PhD and then fewer of us actually secure tenure track jobs and even fewer of us get full professorships. And so I think I write in that piece, I'm the exception to the rule. Um, I'm not here because I'm not qualified, but I'm here because a system is set up in which you know, it lets a few of us get in and say, okay, that one person did it. So now everybody can. And that is really frustrating for me. Um, and I think for me, um, <laughs> I call them hoarders of knowledge. Like there's capital that is held within specific academic spaces and people are scared to share it because it might, that competitional, like competition level happens. And for me, I've done everything in my power not to be that type of scholar or academic. If I know something, I'm going to share it with you. And I'm going to be, take my proposal, take my dissertation, take um, this grant that I am writing or thinking about writing, uh, take whatever I can give you, my job market materials, this is what I did, this was the formula that I had, this is, you know, my graduate school application. So I've been really um, proactive in that sense to share everything that I know. And with groups, I think, Oh, I think when you go to those big conferences that you're able to sit down with other academics of color, specifically for me, women of color across the nation that are at different institutions and just hearing uh, what it means to be here in the Ivy League versus what it means to be in a state system that's teaching intensive. It's like night and day. The resources are ridiculously different. Um, there's different struggles. I'm very, I, I'm in a very privileged place. And I think that's a part of understanding who you are in that location, right? You have to acknowledge that it's definitely a privileged space. And what I, what I'm able to do is share as much as I get more resources than they do for the most part. And so I'm trying to share everything that I'm getting here, filtering it through the pipeline. Like this is what I know, this is what I'm doing. So sitting, um, a lot of the things that I do are for graduate students of color and sitting on panels discussing, this is why we do quantitative methods. We can do it and this is how we're going to do it. Or we can get into these spaces, um, and just sharing networks. If you ever see me at a conference, 
you'll see me sit at a table with grad students, faculty, all different, and I'll just start networking them across. You guys do the same research as who you are, and I'll be jumping and jumping, and people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm building our networks because we need them. Lots of folks already have them, but people of color across the board may not have them, and we need to start that. So I think that's important for me um, to do, and I think that's uh, the, the sustaining part of it. But yeah, it is painful. Sometimes it's very painful. And I think I had expressed earlier that my writing is my refuge. Like, um, I'm very fortunate that Jamal Watson grabbed onto that, that piece that I contributed. And I have to give a shout out to Mary Beth Gassman here too, because she has her students write op-eds and they get to submit them places. And if they get picked up, great. And so that's something that she's really active about doing is making sure that you're not just a researcher in your head, that you have information that anybody can read and take away. And I think that she's like right as an eighth, right to an eighth grade audience because that's the New York Times writes too, and just really cool um, two page article of how to write an op ed. And so she encouraged me to do so, and that's how I got onto Diverse with Jamal Watson. And he picked it up, and he's like, "Your your piece went viral. Would you like to be an active contributor?" And I said, "Yes, absolutely. If you like what I write, then yeah, I'd love to write." Um, so I really like writing, and I think I write but with storytelling first, and I kind of try to tie it back mm -hmm. to education. Um, so I, the one that I wrote recently was The Hate You Give. I talk about Tupac. I talk about Angie Thomas. Um, this one I have coming out, I think it runs Wednesday, but it's Fix Your Face, like how people always tell me, like, you know, why, you're, why are you rolling your eyes? <laughs> like who you are? Like try to control the female body in this carceral state. And it's like, no, we have to push against those boundaries. So I think the platform that I'm given um, is really important for me and I try to use it as much as possible, but it is painful and I'm here. I don't, I know I, I can't speak for others, but I know I share that experience and I'm trying to let people know about it as much as possible. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Mary is dope. Um, we've connected on Twitter and she was telling me, you know, I was kind of saying, you know, Hey, I reached out to her and say, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about, taking that leap, do you have any recommendations? And then she reached back and said, hey, you know, let me email you about this, these positions at Shaw University because they're looking for, for folks, which I would rather teach at an HBCU than any other spot anyway, because I, I just want to be me. And I want to be right. in that sort of environment i mean having gone to one uh, i started out at tougaloo college so having gone to one and know what it feels like to sort of look around and all of the excellence on campus looks like you uh -huh, uh -huh. that's and, really important and, and and it was and to and to be around people that have that expectation of you being excellent, demanding that you raise your your level to that bar uh, so I would, you know, she's, she's real dope. And she's done a lot of writing about how white academia is. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, she makes really good points regarding that. Um, you know, why don't pre PWIs or historically white institutions, predominantly white institutions look to MSIs if they're trying to diversify um, or get to that inclusion and equity, right? Minority serving institutions have been doing this work for decades, years, and yet no one is looking to them, right? And I think she's really trying to have that voice out there and put those folks on a platform so they, you know, are seen as knowledge holders and we can go to them. 
for things that we need. And so, yeah, I like her work. I excited a lot. <laughs> and I do a lot of work on HSI. So I work with some of her students. Awesome. Awesome. So with the number of, I, I guess now I just want to, I got to bring this home. That student who right now is in, they're working on a master's. Uh, and I will even throw in, again, folks from my era uh, in my field who actually, they're, te- I mean, they're teaching at a school and they have uh, their doctorates. How, how do people actually pursue a tenure track faculty position? What is the secret sauce for, for someone? Or is it just happenstance? Is it just a, a matter of meeting the right person at the right time? Or is there a real formula of, you know, X plus Y equals this? Yeah, good question. I've been getting that question a lot. I probably have an op-ed on it. But um, <laughs> you have to create the perfect storm. That's the way I'm seeing it. And rejection is a part of the game. The first time I went on the market, I got rejected 22 times, like just back to back. I had no idea (laughs) that was devastating. I was like, listen, I have a year to get my stuff together and I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure it out. And I think that's when I started meeting with like the Sean Harpers of the world, with Mary Beth Gassman's, Laura Perna's that are full professors. And I'm very privileged to be here at Penn and have those resources and talk to different faculty and say, okay, how did it, how did you do it? Right. How did you work? Um, and like Tyrone Howard and Danny Solorsono and like Dolores Agata Bernal, these are all faculty that I've worked with um, that sat down and looked at my cover letter, read it, said, take this out. This is too long. What do you mean by this? Your CV should be organized like this. Um, but also people that were past search committee chairs, I asked as well regarding what the application, what they're looking for. And one thing that I found out that I didn't know was that people were meeting before, like some people knew about the job before it even came out because their networks were that strong. Um, And they're like, oh, yo, no, we're gonna have an opening. So, you know, cycled academic job market goes fall through spring, really like the first wave of the high tier jobs, quote unquote, I guess, will happen in fall and then the other ones will come out in spring. But for me, that that one year when I flopped that spring, I went to an academic conference and I started asking around, are you guys hiring? Because they already know if they're hiring in the fall or not. You know, they have their butt that's doing it. And they're like, oh yeah, come or contact me again here. You know, I think we're going to have an opening. So I started doing that hustle work in the spring. And then by summer, I dedicated my whole summer to my materials and altering. Also, um, I knew that for my CV, I had no publications. I looked at all the gaps where I had, and I was like, all right, I definitely have to get things out. Um, so it depends on what kind of institute. You have to ask yourself what institution you want to be at, what the, what the market's going to look like, how you're going to alter your CV. And so the summer, I dedicated the majority of my time on altering all of my materials, making them as crisp, as clean as possible. The professor is in. There's a book. She has, I mean, that was my Bible. And I tell students who are thinking about the PhD, who are in the PhD, going on the market to get that book. Um, Definitely want to write a version for people of color because there's things in there, the hidden curriculum that needs to be told. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely had to reorganize and rethink. And then I would say the networking, the, the materials, cause you have eight materials are going to be, that is you on paper and that is what's going to be read. And those better be solid because they go through them, right? You have one job and there's over 200 applicants. So I think that, and then the networking, great. People know who's applying, you know, if they remember your face, you can have um, informational interviews too, where you meet with the search committee chair and kind of ask them, well, what about the position? What are you looking for in a fit? What does it look like? And I think have no fear going up to them. If you see them at a conference, if you know who they are, contacting them via email, having a phone call with them and saying, hey, thinking I'm interested in the position. Um, Cause that really, really helped in terms of my marketability and people knowing me. And then also my research and my publications helped too. So that's a long question, but I mean, not a long answer, but yeah, it's, it's hard. It's not, it was the perfect storm for me, I believe. So not to doubt or underplay my hard work, but seriously, I think it was the perfect storm. Wow. Okay. That's a lot there. I, <laughs> this is where, in my opinion, where, the for-profits come in because, I mean, I got my doctorate from uh, Capella, but what folks should realize that the majority of my professors got their degrees elsewhere. Uh -huh. You know, so like when, you, when your professor graduated from Boston University, would anyone say Boston University is inferior? Uh -huh. And I look at it as also I, I know that I, I know black people who were able to get those jobs in terms of, you know, being a professor, becoming a dean, because those opportunities were a lot more readily available uh, to them. And I haven't heard, quite honestly, I haven't heard anyone who teaches, whether they're at a capella or Argosy, and Argosy has changed their uh, status to a nonprofit now. But I hadn't heard anyone go, uh, or Walden, my gosh, man, I'm dying over here, man. What? They're killing me. I haven't heard anyone talk about how their being a person of color was either a hindrance to them or was something that they felt uncomfortable with it huh. you know, I also want to shout out my dissertation I know it's wrong for me to, it's arrogant for me to say it uh, but people have cited my dissertation people from Pepperdine so not bad not bad uh, I, I don't know maybe I need to cut that out of this interview but it's just one of those things to where like sometimes when people go hey man you know I hear you know no one only one time has someone sort of come to me and say hey no, you did this school, you know, and I'm like, check my citations. Did anybody, <laughs> cite, you know what I'm saying? Did anybody cite yours? Right. Yeah. I think that's, it's, yeah, it's a double edged sword again, right? Because I know academics that didn't have this quote unquote high pedigree and yet are doing amazing work at amazing universities. Um, I, you know, I did go to UCLA. I, 
which is the top ed. I think it's number one ed school this year. Mm-hmm. Rankings. I didn't even look at rankings, honestly, until I came to Penn. And it seemed like um, a thing here, kind of a culture of like, oh, we're ranked here. We're proud of that. And I, yeah. that, the Ivy League in itself is something that I was, I didn't even know Penn was an Ivy League. So everyone out there, I didn't know that. You, come <laughs> you know? on now. You didn't know Penn was, come on now. I was thinking like Harvard, um, you know, Columbia, Dartmouth, and I was like, Penn, interesting, right? But it is, it's the fourth Ivy League. Yes, so it is. Just to show my own, like my own ignorance, but this is also about like communities of color having access and in institutions of higher ed and where we think we can go and where we think we can't, right? And I have a college-educated parent, so tell me, riddle me that. That's what my research is about, is looking at folks that are of color that are generationally college-educated, but where are we ending up? My next research project is undertaking Latinos in the Ivy League. Most of them Mm. that are first gen um, knew that it was a school, knew that it was rigorous. um, But Ivy League was like, what? You know, kind of like, yeah, I did go to Ivy League. But it's also very East Coast dominant for Latinos versus uh, the West Coast where they're looking at USC, Stanford, um, the UC system, Berkeley, UCLA. It's a different type of elite versus the Ivy League elite. So that's my next project is, okay, where are we at? How do we know we get there? And where are the legacies? Is that quote unquote legacy built on a white supremacist notion of what legacy is? Because it started in the Ivy Leagues and admissions for white folks to get in and consistently stay in and still exist, or are we something else? Um, so yeah, that's a little side note about <laughs> what I think um, for pedigree, you know, versus those that are ending up doing the work and have great scholarships that didn't go into these top elite universities, right? And I think I have uh, mentors that have done both, and I'm very fortunate to have been exposed to both because now I have both perspectives. No doubt, doing it. So before we go, Miss Ivy League, um, <laughs> I went to the University of Utah, okay, and I'm proud of that. <laughs> no, and, and you're getting ready to go, to, and you're getting ready to go to go to Rutgers as well. So that. You know, that's not backyard you. Um, I am very excited. Very good school. Very good people. You're doing doing your thing. No, no shot. No slight on backyard you if there's one out there. I'm just saying, you know, (laughs) I just tried to make up a name. Um, What do you say? What is your call to action for those people of color who will read things whether it's on diverseeducation.com, maybe a research journal article out there where they talk about the plight of people of color entering academia. They may listen to this podcast and just feel like, well, why should I even try? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, it, it sounds difficult. And once I get there, it doesn't even sound life-affirming what do you say to them to get them to push forward anyway right oh man i've been getting this question a lot honestly (laughs) people have been um, sending me messages talking on phone calls i would say let's talk right let's have that conversation of what this looks like for you and how we make it work for you and i've had numerous women of color academics that have served as mentors to me when they didn't have to, but they did out of labor of love. And they're obviously, I will just shout out my women of color academics that are overworked, underpaid and doing the work by 10. 
um, times 10 for folks, right? Um, and I, I've learned how to say no. And I think when a person says no to you, don't say, all right, they don't care. Just know that when we're up here in the academic ivory tower, we're being pulled 30 different ways. Be patient with us. Please be patient with us. I tell people, if you email me and I don't respond within a week, email me again. I will get to mm -hmm. it, I promise. Like, just don't give up um, in that sense and bug people. Some of my really good mentors who are super busy, I have bugged. I'm on the street if I need to. So I think those are some takeaways that I have held. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think when I look at students of color who are interested in pursuing a PhD, you know, they, they are the, our future, they are my hope, and that's why I stay in the game, right? Okay. I don't know where I ended. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The internet went out or something. I don't know. But I was on this nice preaching talk, <laughs> and then I was like, hello? <laughs> yep. Okay, yeah, we're still recording. Uh, yeah, it went out. I don't even know what happened. Maybe it took you. I don't know. But I was just sitting here, and I was listening, and then it, like, went out. And I was like, what was the last thing I said that you heard? I can't even remember. <laughs> okay. Because my mind was like, okay, if you can remember, you know, go for it. Uh, I was just sitting there going like, did it just cut off? <laughs> I think you're asking me what, what I tell folks that want to do this, right? Pursue this, this career. Yes, because you're telling, from, from what you've been telling me, if I'm not a black unicorn, I should even worry about it. I should just walk away and find me a lane to be in oh. and, 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 and go and you know what I'm saying? And go kill that lane. Now I understand that everyone isn't meant from a higher power perspective. Everyone's not meant to do the same thing. We have our own gifts and talents and paths that we must walk. But when it's in your, like, this is like your dream. You're like, man, man, I want to be at that university. I want to be in the classroom. I want to teach. I want to wear the jackets with the patches on them. You know, I want to do all of those things. And they're hearing you on this show right now, telling them how difficult the climb is. And, and once they even get to that mountain, they can still be left in the cold with one stick of flame to keep them warm and no marshmallows for the cocoa. What a bleak, uh, what a bleak painting. Yeah, you know, like, why should they even put themselves through that? Mm -hmm. um, well, I hope I didn't make them hopeless, first and foremost. That's not my intention. I'm not saying no. But also keep in mind that my story is my own and my journey is my own. So this is what I went through and this is what works for me, which may be different for you. First and foremost, I think one thing that I tell my students and the people I mentor is that I didn't, I came in with rose colored glasses. And so I try to do the opposite for my students and let them know so they don't get hit like I did. 
and have to really renegotiate what I'm doing. You know, there's were moments where I wanted to quit grad school and say, nope, I'm done. I'm good. But there was always that one mentor that pulled me in and said, you got this. You've got this. You have to take care of yourself. You have to love yourself and you're going to do it. And you have to find that one person that does that for you because they will keep you in the game. Mm. And I think for me, it's about patience. Cause I, you know, I, I will honestly say I am my own worst enemy. I critique myself the hardest. I doubt my abilities, but once I flipped that script and started believing what my mentors were telling me, I was like, all right, I got this. I can do this. And so once I got out of my own way, I started. And even now one of my mentors is like, so you're going to start listening to me. <laughs> I was like, maybe on some things yes I said maybe we'll take another 10 years he's like I don't got another 10 years anymore Nicole I'm making you like me so you can go out there and do the work with me <laughs> I'm like, all right you're right so I think that's something but um, I, people describe me as having tough love as a mentor um, and by all means I feel like that dialogue between you and whoever your mentor is is important and you know getting that feedback and knowing when to alter your pedagogy or how you mentor is always important too and having that constant reflection but yeah I say I think be patient stay strong and if you have a goal in mind you know you you should reach that goal that's part of it and make sure that you have people that are going to back you up and lift you up during that that's my word of advice awesome awesome thank you Dr. Nicole Margarita Garcia thank you for having me on Dr. Will <laughs> you are welcome People, you know how I do this. The video cast is going up on YouTube. I need you to subscribe, leave your leave me some comments. The video cast, the audio podcast will be going over iTunes and SoundCloud. Follow, subscribe, leave comments because your boy's trying to get Oprah on the show. And I want her to know I bring it like that. So, people, as always, invest in you. EDU, peace. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. Have a good night.